What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. I realized something incredibly profound that my creativity was sort of like a water faucet and it had a dark faucet and a light faucet. And my whole life up to that point, the dark faucet was the only one turned on. And I had continually channeled this deep despair into darkness through creativity. And I felt almost like I was a victim of that darkness and it just channeled through me and there was nothing I could do about it. But when I realized that I had the ability to make these toys so easily, it was like something changed in me. The dark faucet went off and I was able to channel that very same despair that had birthed only darkness into light through making these toys. And that made me feel like I could breathe for the very first time in my life. You're listening to What I Know from Inc. Magazine. I'm Christine Legorio Chafkin. Today's episode Existential Fear and Entrepreneurship. Melissa Bernstein built a $500 million business. She's the designer behind more than 1,000 of its toys, and she has a happy marriage and children, six of them. You'd think she had it all figured out. You can imagine the daily chaos of building her company, Melissa and Doug, designing meaningful educational toys and puzzles and raising those kids. It was all-consuming. And for Melissa, it meant she was constantly busy, constantly serving others and totally pushing down her own emotions, which is something not healthy for anyone. But for her, a person who'd suffered extreme depression and who is, in her own description, an existential nihilist, perhaps it was both repression and something of a salvation. Now, at age 55, Melissa has confronted her mental health struggles and is addressing them head-on in her new book, called Lifelines. She's also created a virtual community of the same name to help others find connections and get help. Just a quick note, in this episode, we do talk about mental health and despair. If you or a loved one are feeling those things, we've put some resources to check out in the show notes. Before Melissa started her company with her then-partner and now-husband, Doug Bernstein, she was a creative kid who had an obsession with perfection, And that drove her into a lucrative and esteemed career in investment banking. You know, I was from the very beginning an introvert and really escaped to the boundless expanse of my imagination every single day. And that really held the power of anything I could create and invent. And that was my childhood. My childhood was about making something out of the boredom. And I created from my earliest memories, I wrote music. I wrote verses that rhymed. 
I drew, I crafted, I made clothes for my Barbie outside the house and used like little scraps of fabric I found within the house. I really used my hands and my imagination, I think, for every single thing I did in childhood. That's fantastic. And so it was about kind of the making and the dreaming up of of things. But my understanding is you had something of a, a, a normal career path before becoming an entrepreneur. Is that is that right? Yes. So in those days, you know, you didn't ever think you were going to start a company. I never even saw myself as a creative person, which was crazy. All I did was create, but I never thought of that as being something I would pursue in my vocational life. So I went the traditional path. When I was about 10, I decided that being a lawyer would be really accepted. I went that path through college until I had this fateful incident where I was sitting down to take the LSAT and I completely had a panic attack in my LSAT and had to void it out and and never ended up even finishing it. But then of course, did I follow a creative path? No, I decided I would choose the next accoladed career, which was investment banking. So you were just follow, you were following the the like accepted straight path. You're this this creative thinker who is also type A, wanting to follow the rules, wanting to do the thing that that brings success. How did that start to kind of change? Yes, I think meeting Doug started everything because you know I never listened to the cry of my own soul. I listened to what society told me to do and what would be accepted as being, you know, the highest achieving thing I could do. And that was investment banking, because in those days, it was like the glory job and it was one out of a thousand. And they used to talk about it like it was like winning an Olympic gold if you got these positions. So I just like pre pre Wolf of Wall Street. Exactly. was. It was Drexel Burnham, Lambert and Michael Milken. And when you got an interview, they flew you first class and you ate dinner at Windows on the World in the trade centers. Like it was being treated like you were someone really special. And I never felt special. And I think that became the shiny gold star that I needed. And I determined that I was going to get one of those jobs. And I was fortunate because I happened to be fluent in Japanese, had some cool experiences that really made me, ironically, this perfect candidate for consulting and investment banking. And in those days, they didn't want you to have a financial background. So it was like, perfect. And I accepted that role and very quickly came to see that being in that role was like I was a flower without sunlight and water. And the more I did something that I didn't feel was my passion. And also I didn't feel good in the combination of not being good at it or passionate about it started to weigh on me. And Doug, you know, and I were were dating at that point and it had gotten to the point where I couldn't even really get out of bed each day. I was so terrified about messing up. I didn't understand these numbers and they didn't sing to me and I couldn't use them in really cool ways to make them show an answer that no one had ever seen. I was feeling really uninspired and sad. And one day we were both like, 
you know, that this isn't working. And I think Doug gave me the courage. He was like, let's do something on our own. And he has this really funny thing. He says, he always says, Melissa, you and I gave birth to a company out of wedlock. It was like, yes, we conceived a company out of wedlock because we were just dating. And we decided we were going to like step off society's treadmill and do something on our own. That's amazing. And what was the what was the seed of that? And and how did you come to children's toys as your your product? You know, we decided we were going to go away for a fateful weekend to a bed and breakfast in the Berkshire Mountains, and we would not leave until we came up with our idea, like what we were going to do for the rest of our lives, at least at that point. And we knew very quickly that it had to revolve around children. We love children. We always love children. And all our parents were involved in education in some form or fashion. And Doug had been really involved. He had been on Connecticut's board of higher ed, and he was really passionate about education. So we just had to figure out what we were going to do with children. And we had a lot of ideas, to be honest. We thought about a really innovative school that would teach life skills. And, you know, we had some innovative ideas, but ultimately we started talking about the products that had meant the most to us as children, like those timeless classic products that we felt didn't exist. And we were like, I think there's room for us in creating products for kids that have the ability to unleash their imagination and engage them in open-ended play. I have a question about your products in particular, but first I, I heard that when you when you two told your parents they were not pleased that you were stepping off the corporate treadmill and wanting to do your own thing. Is that true? His were much more pleased than mine. I think mine were terrified, you know, <laughs> and they had taken those conventional paths. And my father, he always wanted to be an entrepreneur and never did because he was too terrified of, of failing and not being able to sort of support the family. So I think when I told them that I'm pooling my meager life savings with my boyfriend, no less, and we're starting a toy company, they were like, you have lost your mind. They truly like, they Uh were, the look on their faces was utter horror. You can't do that. Like you have a career, you're stepping off a career that could lead you to material comfort. By that point, I had denied myself for so long that I was only in darkness. And I was like, I'm sorry, I I can't, I can't do this any, any further. My uh, four-year-old had a question for you, which is, how did you get the Velcro onto the wood? Um, he he loves the kind of textures of the toys and of the puzzles. They just feel like they're going to have a life beyond the little plastic crap that they also play with. So was having eco toys part of the mission or when did it become part of what you do? And are they really more ecological? Wood for us signified something that we were still yearning for, like that timeless, classic, solid sense of being loved. So we always wanted wood because we felt like those toys had disappeared. And basically what had happened to wooden toys is they were sort of relegated to Europe. They were so costly. They were really inaccessible to most folks to purchase. So we felt we really had this opportunity to take solid, beautiful wood inject it with pizzazz to make it more accessible, fun, and fresh, and then put it at price points where everybody could afford. And of course, do it, you know, I I would say sustainability wasn't our number one goal. To be honest, accessibility was, 
Like we were really concerned with making good quality, well-designed, fun toys available to hardworking people everywhere. However, we of course still wanted our wood to be recyclable and use forests that are being sustained. And we've only, I'd say, become more so that way over the years. Looking way back, what was the biggest challenge you faced in the first few years of building Melissa and Doug? I think it was just having to do everything ourselves. We didn't take on investors until 20 years. We had to be everything. I mean, literally, we sold the product, Doug and I together, put it in the envelope. We sealed it together. We drove it to UPS and we were the entire process from start to finish. And those were the days when we truly worked 24 seven. We had a hot plate and we ate ramen with turkey hot dogs because that's all we could afford. And our meals, I remember had to be under 50 cents for two people twice a day. And if we could do that, we could have maybe like albacore tuna for dinner, which is like the nicer tuna, you know, we were struggling, you know, not, not complaining about it, but we knew if we didn't do everything and work, you know, 16 hour days that we weren't going to make it. And, and what was it like starting out with, with your boyfriend, with your husband then, um, what was your relationship like and your work relationship? All our kids ever say is, can you stop talking about work? Like Melissa and Doug was our first baby before we even had children. We talk about it all the time and it we love it. Like we loved everything we did the, all those years so much that we couldn't help but talk about it. I mentor so many entrepreneurs now. And I always say to them, like, if you think about your business as a, a pie and you look at where you are in the pie, then the goal is to fill the other section of the pie with those who can have those skills that you don't have. And just by karma, by luck, Doug and I are both two different halves of that pie. If partners are the same half of the pie, that's when it doesn't work. Yeah, what are your, what are your sides of the pie? So I'd say his skills are all the people things like hiring. He, he truly hired nearly every single person we ever had at Melissa and Doug himself. That is like his gift of finding these beautiful gold nuggets and really um, grooming them and working with them to become great members of our team. The quality and the safety were the thing he felt most passionate uh, about. And that is hallmark to our brand. And then all the operations, you know, really focusing on sort of how we were going to get from A to B in terms of our supply chain and everything else. I love nothing more than creating the vision for our products, really talking about the mission, which I feel so passionate about. And I'm also really involved in selling our products because I know how amazing they are. And I can really communicate that with our customers and give them that beautiful passion for uh, selling it to customers as well. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, yeah, you're you're famous for having designed some, you know, thousands of your own toys. It's amazing. Um, how has that process evolved for you over the years? I was a perfectionist my whole life. Absolutely terrified of taking risks and failing. Being a product creator for 30 plus years completely changed me in such an amazing way. And right behind my desk at Melissa and Doug, I have what now is about a thousand of my favorite failures. 
displayed for everyone to see. And those are the products that, you know, most of them took the longest to make, of course, were the most complex, of course. I was positive we're going to be incredible successes. And for innumerable reasons, which we can talk about, they failed. I keep them behind me to show that we need those failures. They are essential to have the successes because I've created about 10,000 products in my 30 plus years and only a couple thousand of them are still you know, on the market. So that means that I failed a lot more than I succeeded and still we have a $500 million company. So what does that tell you about success and failure? What was the biggest inflection point? And by that, I mean, like, what was a period of time where there, it, it was really meaningful for the company in terms of achieving either a super fast growth or a breakout product or some other milestone um, that you think of as like, wow, that time period was very intense? You know, you have one product and some people have, are one product wonder. They come up with this one idea and it reaches, you know, mass success and then they can't seem to replicate it. So we had our one puzzle. And then we had the ability to turn those into an entire category of puzzles. And for 10 years, we were simply a puzzle company. And we had about three to 400 puzzles by the time we sort of exhausted that category. Our inflection point and the reason you know we're here and still growing was we took that philosophy that made puzzles so successful, which was basically we can take an old, dull, boring, lackluster category and we can reinvent it and reimagine it with pizzazz and injecting that vigor into it and turn it into a really vibrant category. And everyone called us a puzzle company. They said, oh, you're a puzzle company. And Doug and I knew we would always look at each other. We're like, we're not a puzzle company. Um, we're, we're a children's company. It was when we took that philosophy and saw that we could put that same exact philosophy in innumerable other categories and have success in those as well. So it worked with wooden toys. And then people called us a wooden toy company. And we were like, no, 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 no. We're not a wooden toy company. We love wood, but we're not a wooden toy company. So then we did it with stuffed animals, with plush. And I think it was right after Thai Beanie Babies had their crazy success and had crashed. And folks were like, no one should go into plush for decades. And we had tremendous success there. That was when Doug and I looked at each other and we were like, we're onto something. We have a philosophy now that can transfer into so many other categories. You know, we've we've talked a lot already about toy development having been kind of a necessary thing for you in growing the company. But it it turns out it was also something very necessary for you uh, personally and your mental health. Yes. Uh, you know, creating toys was my salvation. It was the first dot of my life that made me want to be here. For the first 22 years of my life, I only created darkness out of darkness. And my most innate form of creativity is writing music and writing verses. They were so dark and despairing that I wasn't able to share them with the world because I thought they would stigmatize me even more. And they never touched light. And because of that, never brought my life meaning. By accident, when Doug and I sort of left conventional you know, society and decided to start this company, I came up with our first sort of line of toys I realized something incredibly profound that my creativity was sort of like a water faucet and it had a dark faucet and a light faucet. And my whole life up to that point 
the dark faucet was the only one turned on. And I had continually channeled this deep despair into darkness through creativity. And I felt almost like I was a victim of that darkness and it just channeled through me and there was nothing I could do about it. But when I realized that I had the ability to make these toys so easily, it was like something changed in me. The dark faucet went off and I was able to channel that very same despair that had birthed only darkness into light through making these toys. And that made me feel like I could breathe for the very first time in my life. Wow, that's that's incredible. Um, how else, I guess how uh, can you describe to me sort of what you were feeling during those years of building the company? Um, you know, you say in your own words that you suffered from severe existential anxiety and depression. You know, at Inc, we've written a lot about um, sort of the challenges of building an enterprise. You know, while coping with your own mental health, and they're they're very interconnected for some people. So I, I just wanted to kind of open that up for you to to talk about and just learn about your challenges. I mean, I think in one sense, believe it or not, the company having six children, creating all the products was really therapeutic for me because it didn't allow me to think yeah. very much. It really had me being in my heart, just like acting 24 seven. I mean, we were so busy <laughs> during those times that it actually was a bomb for me in making it so I couldn't get in my head and, and question like why I was here in the meaning of life. And the truth is I was creating like 24 seven, you know, six children and thousands of products and really leading our product team and finding tremendous joy through that. And, you know, I had already denied, repressed and disassociated from those feelings of despair because that was the only way I could live and, and be okay. So I think it was already so repressed anyway. And this just really helped me to survive and function and know that I couldn't stay in bed all day. Like I had a lot of people depending on me and I kind of liked that. It's, it's a very odd thing. You know, I may be one of the most high achieving existentially depressed people ever because achievement did become my method of survival. Yeah, sure. I mean, just alone, six children while working on a company full time. I mean, it's that's wild the amount you're able to achieve as as a parent of multiples. Like it's it's wild to think about. Um and um and and then there's this next layer of what you had already kind of repressed as you said or were turning off by focusing on everything else. I'd love to talk a little bit about what that's kind of become for you. You you recently decided that um that your depression was something you were going to write about and turn into sort of a venture of its own. Um to help other people. Um, what is what is Lifelines? Yeah, so I'm so fortunate to have Doug by me for now, like this second adventure that we're taking together. It's almost unfathomable that we would be doing this again, but we are. And I think, you know, I reached this point and I now understand why it's called a midlife crisis because for most of my life, I effectively hit it and really repressed all those deep, dark feelings that threatened to, to submerge me. But as I became older and older, it was so difficult to deny the cry of my own soul to be seen. It was just getting so deafening. I knew I couldn't race away from myself and everything I felt. 
any longer. Even what I was doing in creating toys, even though it was my salvation and it was so beautiful, I was hiding behind the Melissa and Doug logo and really no one was seeing that those toys were birthed out of a tremendous amount of despair. And I felt like until I could come out as I truly was, as this dark, churning, introverted, heady, creative, I would never rest in peace. And I needed to show myself, the world, my family, who I truly was. I, I kind of reached this point and a couple dots connected that made me, me say, you know what? I've got to share my story. I've got to share who I am so that others at much younger ages can have the courage to know they're not alone and they can share their stories as well. Yeah, that's wonderful. And so you both wrote a book and, and shared some of your, your verses and your thoughts and have a venture that's sort of a community for folks to, to join in. Um, it's a membership organization. Is that right? Well, it's completely free. Oh, okay. Doug and I wanted to give back because, you know, Melissa and Doug's been so good to us for 32 years. It's given to us. And this is really our passion project. Really, it's based on sort of three core premises. The first is you are not alone because throughout my life, even though I hit it, I felt this deep, utter sense of being entirely alone and that no one would ever really understand the real me. Because again, all the qualities that give me the ability to create from nothing are also very stigmatizing and make me very odd and weird. And I never wanted to be seen as odd and weird. I wanted to be accepted. I hid those from the world. And we don't want people to hide those in lifelines. We want them to come to us as exactly who they are and embrace them with open arms. Secondly, which is maybe the most important, we all have the capacity to channel our darkness into light and make meaning. And I never thought I could do that. I really thought I would be entrenched in darkness my whole life. But if I can do it, someone who was an existential nihilist, which is the darkest form of despair, anybody has the power to channel their darkness into light. And we're showing them sort of that pathway. And then three, you know, the other thing that most of us do, and I did, I was engaged in the futile race my whole life, racing away from who I was and what I felt to find sort of validation outside myself. Uh, it was only when I had the courage to finally stop racing and make that inner journey to accept myself in totality that I really found peace. And that journey that I took, my own journey, we recreated as the centerpiece of the lifelines.com ecosystem so that others can take it totally free as well. Yeah, that's fantastic. And so is it set up as a nonprofit or is it um, going to be a, a company someday? How many members do you have? Like, where is that at now? Right now we are financing the whole thing. But, you know, we, we do ultimately, and we want our content and community to be entirely free because I feel like everybody deserves to find a community that accepts them. But one of the fun things, you know, I am a creative and I love creating products more than anything. So we do ultimately want to create products as well that will help people engage in their senses and find that grounding that we all so desperately need and seek. You know, if we can support our venture one day based on beautiful, excessively priced products, then that will be wonderful. 
because I think our community, we want to always, you know, be welcoming to everyone and not something people would pay for. Yeah. Yeah. That's wonderful. I mean, you mentioned that, that everyone deserves a community and simultaneously, um, two things are sort of happening in our culture, right? This, the pandemic, which has just not been good for people's mental health and stability. And also this uh, growing awareness that certain online communities are um, good for some people, but also can breed just so much mistrust, so much disinformation. Social networks are are highly problematic on a level. How are you kind of balancing those things? I know that's kind of a big, complicated question, but as you're starting out, it's really important to be considering those. It really is. And we're trying to make our community so safe because people need to share their stories and their stories. Sometimes they're sharing them with us for the very first time. So I think we've been overwhelmed by the need. You know, I was on a piece on CBS Sunday morning and I received close to 10,000 letters in two days from people who are just in such despair and so isolated and so disconnected from what brings them joy that we really are in the next pandemic right now as we speak in mental health. I think we're trying our best to create a warm, welcoming, safe space and allow everyone to share their story and be seen. And I feel really good about it. I mean, we're having these deep workshops about things that most people don't talk about. Um, And last night we had what we call a secret spotlight with one of our community members sharing her beautiful story, which is deep. I think we're finding resonance and we're finding many saying to us, even though we're just peer to peer, we're not professionals. We're finding so many saying to us, that's enough. Just knowing that there's a group of people who are also feeling isolated, who also have mental afflictions and are okay with, with being that way is enough to make me feel like there's hope. Yeah, that's fantastic. And a couple of your kids are involved as well. Is that right? Yes. Two of our daughters are intimately involved, which I I never would have imagined would have happened. And I think, you know, the, the fascinating thing with this is the audience is everyone. It's from eight-year-old girls who are feeling anxiety to 108-year-old folks who are feeling isolated and alone. I feel like my daughters can really relate. There's so many young adults who are struggling right now. I mean, Zoom learning has not been good for kids and we're, we're biological and we crave human connection. So they can really speak to those communities and they're really helping us connect with those communities in a way that I wouldn't be, be able to do. Sure, sure, absolutely. And and I wanted to ask you also, talking about folks with a whole spectrum of abilities and differences and mental health challenges. I feel like in the workplace, you know, we've had just an epic year of talking about how to build more equitable workplaces and how to build a more equitable society. And mental health awareness is part of that picture, right? And treating folks at work with right respect and and giving them enough space to experience everything in the way that, that they can most best, I guess, and allowing for abilities to flourish um, in the workplace. How, what have you learned over the past year about that and how can everyone do a little better, start down that path of recognizing mental health challenges or at least making the space for them? You know, I think the workplace is the place we need the most work in that. Yeah. I feel like 
In other areas now, we're starting to see real meaningful difference and really talking about these things and getting rid of the stigma. I feel in the C-suites of corporations, Fortune 500 corporations and others, there's still a very stiff facade that's going on. And I believe one of the reasons I'm doing this and, and coming out so vocally is because I want people to see that you can run a company, you know, Doug and I were co-CEOs for 20 years and have a mental health affliction and still be effective and successful. And I feel like until more of the C-suites of these companies come out and say, I have a mental health affliction, I have a mental health affliction, they won't allow their employees to feel comfortable doing the same. And I know, you know, so many folks that work at large corporations tell me I'm terrified of telling my boss that I'm, I had a panic attack and I need a couple hours just to calm down. And so many of these corporations aren't getting the best out of their workers because their workers are carrying this secret on their backs like a gorilla and it's disabling them from being their most effective at work. I feel like if more of us come out and share the truth of what we are afflicted with or even our family members, I mean, we're all either afflicted ourselves at this point or know someone very close to us who is. It's that high a percentage coming out of this pandemic that I think we need to share that in order to make certain that others feel comfortable sharing it as well. Melissa, thank you so much for sharing with us today. Um, this, has been, this has been really a great conversation. Thanks, Christine. After speaking with Melissa, it's impressive to me that she has the courage to tell her story after all these years of burying it and letting the daily pressures of growing her business and raising her kids keep what she was truly feeling suppressed. She has such a fascinating, unique perspective, and I love that she's developed a way to talk about it. I cannot imagine the work that went into even putting into words her life of dark feelings and her creative output, the light and the dark faucet she describes, and the manner in which she didn't or wasn't able to cope with those feelings. There's a lot of complexity in what she'd gone through, and also a certain sense of discord. After all, she made her name and fortune bringing joy to little kids with delightful toys and costumes and puzzles. It's basically the opposite of existential darkness. She said, really no one was seeing that those toys were birthed out of a tremendous amount of despair. That she's now able to not just come to terms with her own mental struggles, but is also able to have created a community to help others is just incredible. The fortitude behind that is inspiring. And that's something we can all learn from. What I Know is a production of Inc. Magazine. If you're a new listener, welcome. Please follow What I Know so you don't miss our next episodes. 
If you have a friend interested in startups, entrepreneurship, or evolving as a leader, please send them a link to our show. And if you have an idea of a founder you'd love to hear from, drop us a note at whatiknowatinc.com. You can also let me know directly on Twitter at Legorio. Our producer, who also received a green wooden pull toy frog for his birthday, is Joshua Christensen. I'm Christine Legorio-Chafkin. Thank you for listening to What I Know. What I Know.